Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Live from the 6th and Peabody studio and across the OutKick network, this is OutKick 360 with Jonathan Hutton and Chad Withrow. He had Purdue and where Louisville is right now. He can come in now and bring them back to prominence. And, and it's a good program. Bring them back to a program that is contending for conference titles and, you know, a 12-team playoff. And it's a 500 program right now that Satterfield leaves and now takes over at Cincinnati. Yeah, and there's just not a lot of juggernauts at the top of the ACC. So he steps into a situation at Louisville. That job, you've got money. You know, you got yeah. financial support there. They're going to have some NIL opportunities you got a good opportunity to compete with the Clemson, with Florida State, sure. with North Carolina. Those are really, I mean, right now in the ACC, who else are you circling as a potential riser in that conference? I mean, it's those three teams that I think have some of the built-in features where you could win, and Miami would be another one. Yeah, the but expectations I, I, are there. Yeah, Mario Cristobal such a bad first year, you almost forget about it, but Miami certainly would be another program that fits that criteria. But outside of that, I mean, that's a top five job, I think, in the ACC in football. Yeah. So it's a good move for Brom now. If you were going to make the move, if you really wanted to do it at some point, now's the time to make that happen. I, I'm anxious to see now what happens with Purdue. Another coaching story that we mentioned briefly with, with Bobby Carpenter that fascinates me. Sean Lewis leaves as head coach of Kent State to be Deion Sanders' offensive coordinator. Sean Lewis has been mentioned for a number of FBS-level jobs recently in the last couple of years. Runs an offense similar to what Josh Heupel runs at Tennessee. This is, a, this is an interesting move to me because this is Sean Lewis saying, I'm not really getting the opportunity I want as a group of five-level, MAC-level head coach. I got a better chance to go immediately turn Colorado around with Deion Sanders show off a fast-paced, high-powered offense, and then land a gig. So, I just again, an interesting choice not to go with the head coach at the group of five level and instead go down to coordinator at the power five level at not a great program, but a program now led by Deion Sanders that's going to be in the crosshairs of all media attention over the next couple of years. So I think it's going to work for him because Deion Sanders already has a son coming in, He's got the number one recruit from a year ago, Travis Hunter, has announced he's leaving Jackson State to go to Colorado. They're going to get players hunting. And if they have players, that's an offense that's going to work. Well, I'm just looking up. So the other thing, that he was Dion in his contract gets $5 million for his staff to allocate. You can recruit the best coordinators doing that at that level. I'm yeah. saying you can't compete with the SEC. No, he's getting a raise. Yeah, I think to go to Colorado. Well, and, also. and you get Mike Zimmer, who. But I just again, I look at it not necessarily because it's probably I don't know a two hundred thousand dollar difference. I'm guessing he probably makes seven to eight hundred thousand dollars as head coach at Kent State, and he's probably making over a million now. You know, a sizable bump. But 
Sean Lewis is doing this because he wants to be a head coach at a good job in the power. Sure. He don't want to be at Kent State for the rest of his uh, career. According so to, he thinks this is a better opportunity to do that. According to Google, Sean Lewis was paid 433000 in 2020. That's where it cuts off for me. So maybe you got a bump up there, but that's a substantial raise. For Sean Lewis? Yeah. He went from what to what? Sorry. Well, in the... 2020, Google's saying he was paid 433000 That was his salary. Yeah. Now, I don't know. That's just total pay. I don't know what it was this past year. But it can't be much more. I'm than guessing that. he's gone up uh, oh. because he's interviewed yeah, not, for other jobs. Yeah, but it's part of you can split that up if you're Dion and get your get your guys, take care of your guys. Because if you look around, you know, college football, um, the highest paid assistant in the conference is at what last year was Mike Elko at A and M, I believe. And after that, you've got to, if we're looking at the other conferences, I mean those those coordinators are getting what a million. Yeah, I know Kendall, Kendall Bryles and Barry Odom both were making a lot at Arkansas. No, I'm, I'm just Sam saying outside them. the SEC, yeah. just any other conference other than the SEC and the Big Ten. You know, five million dollar coaching staff salary in the Pac-12 is what? Is that like a huge bump for what Colorado was doing? Yes. And I thought it was hilarious when their their AD sitting there going, um, "Yeah, we know we're going to have the money. <laughs> we don't have it now, but we're going to get it." You know, that's strange, man. Yeah, I, I doubt that's what he told Deion Sanders when they were meeting about the job, too. We're going to get it. We don't have it now. We don't have, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll have it. We'll get it. But, hey, that staff is shaping up now for, for Deion Sanders. I love yeah. the Sean Lewis hire. Um, I, I think they're going to do big things quick just because he's going to so quickly turn that personnel around for Colorado. So that's yeah, so um, that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Of, of the five – of the Power Five, Pac-12 had the lowest average for assistant coach pay, on average. So Colorado's bumped it up, and now they've got Dion running things, and he is legitimately running everything. Walking in with the music, they've got the cameras rolling. That was the weird part for me. Is like the the voyeur cameras following around for the speech, and you yeah. can see all the camera guys swirling them, you know, while he's telling people to hit the portal. What was really weird was the talk to the. Um the Jackson State players, where he had like the guy in the, in the sports coat and the suit with yeah. the Jackson State logo on yeah. it, just sitting there like his bodyguard the whole time. That was an odd setup for a, a speech. He's got such a way of speaking that everything he says sounds powerful and emotional. I mean, he could be making an order at a deli, and it sounds the way he builds it up in his voice, like he's about to start crying or screaming, well, he, but he never really screams. He's not a he, yeller. He also, in his, his presser, said something like, "This is not, it's not about the situation, it's about the destination. And then he stopped himself and, and asked for applause because it was so good. I'm like, come on, man. Like, oh, he said, That's, I want you to applaud. Yeah, he's like, good. come on, that was too good. And, of course, he got the applause. Yeah, all the media started applauding. Yeah, there's a laugh track following him, too. The apparently. start to Colorado season next year, first okay. few games under Deion Sanders, at TCU okay. on September 2nd, Nebraska at home. Wow. Matt Rule wow. okay. versus Deion Sanders, September 9th in Boulder. And then, I don't know what they call this rivalry game now, but uh, Colorado State, big rival for Colorado, is returning. I think that That's game may have one. gone away at some point for some time. But Colorado, Colorado State in Boulder. And then they start Pac-12 play at Arizona State, which has hired a new coach. And Kenny Dillingham, the offensive coordinator from Oregon. Chad, no surprise because you and I discussed this Sunday night. Jalen Hurts is my 
MVP currently for the NFL. This is a back and forth race that I think is going down to, to week 18 to try. To, I think it's a great debate between Hertz and Mahomes. And I don't see either guy tailing off. I've got the column up for my uh, weekly post at outkick.com for the NFL awards for this past week, week 13. Hertz has, in the last two weeks, led an offense that rushed for 360 yards. 363 yards against the Packers, where he rushed for 160 of those, 140 of those. And then the following week, threw for nearly 400 yards against the Titans defense. That is MVP caliber. He has been fantastic this season. And for all of the questions about him, it has gone from prove it to this guy's the most valuable player right now in the NFL. He's been phenomenal. And to me, it's nothing that Mahomes did wrong. Hurts has been that good. The only thing that Mahomes did wrong was uh, that he didn't win right on the road in Cincinnati. Not really his fault in that game, but it felt like he was going to get that opportunity to go down and score and win it. And then Burrow made a Burrow play on 3-11 to end the game. Kelsey never fumbles in situations like he did, and he did in the fourth quarter where they led 24-20. But again, that's not a pick on Mahomes. That's not a... Uh, a, a bad a, a misread or trying to make too much out of something and you know uh, trying to pull out a, a, a rabbit out of the hat and throwing a pick deep. Um, he's been really good, Mahomes, but Hertz has been better. And then Tua Tagovailoa, his so Hertz quickly. Yes, you you've highlighted this game. You've circled it for a while. Oh yeah, the game in Dallas on Christmas Eve. Yes, I think that if this continues with Hertz, he could probably lock up MVP or come close to it if he had a monster performance and a win. If they still have one loss in that game, they go. Uh, they play at the Giants, at the Bears, at the Cowboys, next three games. If they yeah. are 13-1 and one playing that game against Dallas and, and he has a monster performance in that game and they win against that Dallas defense, I mean, it's, it could be a – I'm not going to say he won the MVP in that game, but there could be a sizable gap. At that point. And a couple of weeks ago, I wrote that this was the time where Hertz could take over because the schedule set up. You're mentioning where he's going to be in marquee matchups, and he will be. But the schedule set up to where he could really stat stuff. Not in a, in a, a bad way, but the defenses he's, he was facing, they were going to pop off. They took advantage of the run game and in, against the Titans. You just knew A.J. Brown was going to get his. But Devontae Smith also got his, and Hertz took off uh, in in Hertz fashion as well, uh, distributing the football. Tremendous season there. The, the Rookie of the Year awards, Chad, are really heating up too. Um, oh, first, let me tell you about Tua. So he opens the game against San Francisco with a 75-yard touchdown pass. First play. He threw two picks in the second half, though. And San Francisco ends up winning that game even without Jimmy Garoppolo. Tungavaloa completed a season-low 55% of his pass attempts, and then he left with an ankle injury. So we may see Allen back in the mix now as things pick up for Buffalo, the number one seed currently in the AFC. Uh, I've got Justin Jefferson as the top offensive player this week. And rookie-wise, Christian Watson for the Packers. Vince, this reminds me of Vince Young. Vince Young took over of an 0-16 for the Titans and went on that team finished 8-8. Eight and eight. And he put up mass, massive numbers at quarterback. Especially on the ground. And he won Offensive Rookie of the Year, but didn't start the season strong. You know, he's back up to Kerry Collins. Christian Watson 
you know, drops that touchdown pass early in the season, week one, and Rodgers, for whatever reason, it didn't feel like trusted him, even though he doesn't have many options. <clears throat> and he's been he's been phenomenal. Watson now has seven touchdowns on twenty five catches. Seven it's good, it's good touchdowns ratio. on twenty five catches. And he had a rushing touchdown. He's on, the, on yes, Sunday. he's the only rookie receiver in NFL history to score eight touchdowns in a four game span. So I mean, to me, he's the number one rookie right now, just ahead of Chris Olave, who's been consistent. But it's Watson that's really taking over games now and making the highlight real plays. And then defensively... Is Kenneth Walker hurt now? Yes, he hurt his ankle this so past week. So is he week. out for good? Um, or he, is it... No, no, he's not out for good. It's just an ankle injury that's, uh, Pete Carroll said, it's day-to-day. Okay. Um, he missed... I don't know how this didn't get more play. He missed a blitz pickup in the game that where Geno Smith got lit up, and they got into a, a sideline spat. Now, if that's Tom Brady with a player, you know... We're seeing that on replay, and Geno Smith and and you see Kenneth Walker the third going at him. I was like, man, this is unbelievable. You see the rookie running back doing this. Uh, he's one of the leaders of the team. I immediately have flashbacks to that reserve linebacker punching Geno Smith in the Jets locker room. Yeah, uh, that that to me would be a bad sign if you're Geno Smith. Well, like last time I got into a heated argument yeah. with another player, my jaw was broken at the end of it, and uh, that guy was getting cut. Tariq Woolen is my defensive rookie of the year. And just to be brief on this, six interceptions, tied for the league lead. He ran a legitimate like 4-2 at Texas San Antonio. And somehow with that speed, was a fifth-round pick. I have no idea. I mean, I'm sure there's some off-the-field things that kept him there. Seattle has a great rookie class. And Tariq Woolen's ahead of Softs Gardner, who at no fault of his own, it's kind of like Mahomes. Woolen's just been better. And he continues to, to get takeaways and get the football back for Geno Smith and the Seahawks offense. They're currently the seventh seed in the NFC. When we come back, Clay Travis joins us. We hit the top headlines. We'll talk uh, a number of, of topics. We can go around the horn with, we'll certainly talk Heisman Trophy and Hendon Hooker not being one of the finalists. Uh, John Robinson being fired, college football playoff, and more. Clay Travis next on Outkick 360. Outkick 360 rolls on across the Outkick network. Clay Travis will join us in a matter of minutes. Broadcasting live from 6th and Peabody with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Uh, nostalgia out here. They're continuing to replay. It's like a marathon of Home Alone and Home Alone 2. It's done free form. Two. That's yes, the network that plays they, a lot of old holiday classics. Yeah. That's my favorite. I say holiday I, my classics. Favorite it's film. 1990. It's, when I say film, like it may not be even need to be a Christmas movie for me. I love Home Alone. Home Alone 2 is great, too. It's like the Raiders of the Lost Ark of the yeah. uh, Christmas Christmas film, I the Christmas be, franchise. I, I, did, I mean, you were a, you were with me on this on this era. You every every kid wanted to be Kevin McAllister. I remember going. Uh, I, I want to say Home Alone two came out like right around Thanksgiving, leading into the holidays. And I remember opening weekend, go, my dad taking me and a buddy after school like Friday night. To watch Home Alone 2 in, in movie theaters. And it was a huge event for me. Oh, it's... Uh, I mean, it was yeah. packed. Yes. And we laughed the entire time. It was a big, big deal when that sequel came out. I don't know if I watched the first one in theaters. I do remember watching it, you know, renting it on VHS and then wearing it out watching it. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's a classic. For those, for those of a certain vintage that grew up as a kid with that movie, and now it's one of the rare ones also that's timeless. 
I can show it to my seven-year-old, and she loves it too. That's not often the case with movies that were made a while back. doesn't really translate to the kids of, of today. No. That's one that does. And imagine being the kid that has to replace Macaulay Culkin once you get to like Home Alone 4. There's a um, – so there's like six or seven of them now, I want to say, Home Alones. And there's one that Disney Plus put out last year. Um, Home Sweet Home Alone, I think. And um, (laughs) yeah, my my daughter's seen all of them. Like she's got one, her favorite one is one I've never heard of. Are they like the same like tongue in cheek jokes or is it like more like Disney stuff now? You know what I mean? Like, no, it's definitely more Disney, but I will say the latest one is much more in spirit with the original that Disney Plus put out. And Buzz plays a cop (laughs) in the town. So Buzz grew up and is a cop. I love that. And he makes references to his brother, Kevin, yeah. being rich and owning a security company. That he started a security company when he grew up. But he doesn't make an appearance in the film. So the whole time it kind of builds you up thinking okay. Macaulay Culkin is going to come back yeah, you're gonna see him. into this story in as a grown-up Kevin McAllister. But all they do is reference him. I think he owns a like – which makes sense. He started a security company as he grew up, and it's a – you know, big time millionaire. So we here's what needs to happen. If you're gonna start making all these, you know, new home alone, you gotta bring back Kevin McAllister at some point. You can bring back anything now. Yes. Macaulay Culkin is still acting. Put him in the role of Kevin McAllister in one of these movies. Chad, we're gonna get to Hendon Hooker and, and not being a Heisman finalist despite uh, he's a winner winning every SEC well, award. He swept all the SEC awards, coaches, yeah. media and player of the year and first team all SEC quarterback. And we'll, we'll get to that. Plus, uh, we'll get Clay's thoughts on Deion Sanders to Colorado and much more. Uh, coming up, we'll give our take on the, uh, the John Robinson firing as well. And that, that's where we'll start. But the, the, the timing of it and the signal from the organization that, Chad, they're, they're not settling for a roster rebuild even in the middle of a season where, just like last year, they've got, I mean, guys playing last year that weren't even on the practice squad to begin the season due to injuries, and they still end up with the number one seed. This year, at worst, they're the four seed. But it's a statement that they're not going anywhere if Robinson's rebuilding the roster. That's what's so surprising to me. The guy that built them up is not trusted to do it again. Clay Travis joins us uh, President of Outkick, founder of Outkick, our fearless leader. Clay, uh, your 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 take on the Titans firing Robinson, Amy Adams Trunk firing John Robinson when she did after the Philadelphia Eagles game. Anytime you have a firing like this, to me, it suggests that there is something that occurred that was a precipitating factor, right? Because you're in the middle of a season. To you guys' point, they are likely to be a uh, winner of the AFC South and host a home playoff game for the third straight year. Uh, he's never had a losing record. It just feels odd to me, feels strange to me, that you would decide that this is the right time uh, to make the move in the middle of the season. So I tend to think there was a precipitating factor Um that could have led to this being necessary in college. We would always talk about what is going on with the contract. I don't know. I haven't seen the press availability today. Have the Titans said 
Oh, it was awful. Whether John Robinson, yeah, is John Robinson getting paid out his full contract or are they alleging that this was a four cause firing? Uh, those kind of things yeah. would give you more details about exactly what, what went on. It seems strange to me in general to sign a guy to an extension in February, say that he, you're planning on him being with you for years to come and then flash, uh, you know, flash, uh, flash forward. What are we 10 months later? And you suddenly fire him. Uh, would, that, that, Clay, there seems to be something missed in the in the translation there. He's, he he went from crying at the combine to fired in December. Yeah. Crying at the combine about losing to Cincinnati in the playoff game and what that meant to him emotionally, and then at, this is you know right before he signs the extension. Yeah. At that point, yep. signing the extension, trading away AJ Brown on draft night, and then after AJ Brown torches them, he's fired <laughs> less than forty eight hours later. It's one of the crazier Titan stories. And Clay, you've you've been here forever too. I mean, I, I can't remember being more surprised about a, a story than this one. I don't even think it's a crazy Titan story. I think it's a crazy NFL story. Yeah. Um, because you just don't see GMs who are successful like this being fired midseason uh as they are trending towards a third straight divisional championship. Um, and I think John Robinson has had a lot of failures in terms of his draft picks in recent years, but that's been well known. It's not like suddenly people were like, hey, you know, that Isaiah Wilson guy that you took in the first round who never really played and was gone after a year is a bad guy. You know, it's not a bad draft pick and maybe a bad guy too. I don't know him. Uh, Caleb Farley can't get on the field and you got undrafted uh, picks who are in front of him and he's a first round pick as well. Um, anyway, they're just, uh, there are ample reasons to be disappointed with the recent drafts. But none of that suddenly revealed itself in December of 2022, 10 months after you signed an extension. Uh, that's been kind of readily apparent for several years now. And I will just add that making the decision to trade A.J. Brown in the first place is not something that a powerless GM does, right? Um, that, is, that is kind of a, okay, I'm going to be here for several years because if you were a GM worried about your employment future, you would typically make the decision that you were not, right? Going to risk rocking the boat. And if A.J. Brown decided to leave as a free agent, you'd be like, well, what, what can I do? You know, he turned down our contract offer. But you would try to win now as opposed to build for a couple of years into the future with Traylon Burks. And what I said with the A.J. Brown trade when it happened, by the way, was, and I think it's been proven correct, it closed the Titans' window to make a Super Bowl run. That, that's just what it did. Um, and you can argue, look, if they had A.J. Brown, they're 7-5 and five now. I think they're probably 9-3. and three. I think they probably would have won two more games this year uh, if they had A.J. Brown. And if you're sitting at 9-3, and three, you've got a shot at the number one overall seed, which they had before. Uh, and then you only have to win two games to, uh, to to get into the into the Super Bowl, and only have to win one game to host an AFC Championship. So anyway, I think it closed the window. But that is a that move in the first place was a hey, I'm going to be here to restock and rebuild the roster, and obviously that's no longer true. So Tennessee quarterback Hendon Hooker wins uh, AP Offensive Player of the Year in the SEC. He wins the coaches' vote for Player of the Year offensively in the SEC. He's first-team All-SEC quarterback, and he becomes the first 
guy to sweep the offensive MVP awards in the SEC and not be a Heisman finalist and another SEC player be in front of him and be a Heisman finalist. Clay, I've been screaming to make it make sense. I, I don't understand it. Anytime something like this happens, it gets us talking about, well, who's voting on this award anyways? I know you talked a bit about this on Outkick the Show. Uh, there's over 900 people who vote on the yeah. Heisman, and it really makes me question, who are these people? Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Yeah, I don't have a Heisman vote, and I was kind of joking around. I mean, I've been on this uh, for years now, but I, you know, I don't know where I rank in influential people in college football, but I'm confident in the media. I'm in the top 900, right? Um, <laughs> I think, I'm confident I'm uh, in the top think, 900, so you're definitely in the top yeah. 900. <laughs> I think I'm in the top 900. I've never had a vote, but I've been arguing for a long time that there are way too many people who vote. Um, and I think a lot of these people are just clueless um, in terms of college football. Or, and this is also true, they cover one particular team and so they're not sitting around watching college football all day long, every day, right? Um, I think you need more generalist and less specific people. And I'm not trying to denigrate it, but if you're covering the Florida Gators or the UCLA Bruins and you've got a uh, you've got a Heisman vote, most of your Saturday is spent making sure that you're on top of whatever is happening in your game. And so you're not really apprised of what's going on everywhere else. I mean. The coaches, I would think, uh, in the SEC would be the best at knowing who the best players are. And I think the easiest argument for Hendon Hooker, and I think this kind of ends the case, is if you put Hendon Hooker on Georgia, would the Bulldogs still be undefeated? I think the answer is probably yes. If you put, I'm not trying to take a, a shot at Stetson Bennett. I heard you guys' argument about what a good story he is. I agree. But if you put Stetson Bennett on Tennessee, I think they probably go six and six or seven and five. And, you know, that that difference between players is the ultimate way to test the only guy that I think could be potentially better uh, than Hendon Hooker in this Tennessee offense and in the offense that they run. Maybe Caleb Williams is better. Uh, so I don't have a problem with Caleb Williams winning, although the overall quality of competition uh, that Caleb Williams has played against has not been great. And I'll just point out that Tennessee put up, I think, 56 against Vanderbilt. Hendon Hooker missed one quarter, basically, of the game against South Carolina. He would have put up good numbers against Vanderbilt, too, right? I mean, it's not like yeah. he would have come out and, uh, and, and thrown for 80 yards and four picks against the Vanderbilt uh, defense. So I, I think you could reliably say, hey, this guy would have been pretty good. And even in the South Carolina game, your issue was not with Tennessee's offense. I mean, Tennessee's offense should have scored, uh, if Hendon Hooker stayed healthy, over 40 points. Um, you know, if you lose a game when you score over 40 points, it ain't the offense's fault. So, Clay, you and I are old enough to remember when we were kids when Colorado football was cool. When they were good, <laughs> yeah. the uniforms were cool, the mountains in the backdrop were cool to watch on TV. 
It hasn't been that cool for a while, though. They're cool again because they hired Deion Sanders. Do you think this is going to work at Colorado? And uh, just your overall thoughts on Deion Sanders taking the next step up in college coaching. First of all, kids have no memories, right? I'm 43. I can remember when Colorado was good. But to a kid who is 16 right now, 1990s might as well be the 1940s. It sounds just as far away. And when you were 15 or 16 years old, you remember that too. I remember my dad and his friends would sit around and talk about guys who played in the 1960s and 1970s. And it's like they might as well have been playing in leather helmets for all, <laughs> for all I cared, right? And I think we drastically overrate um, how much history often manage, uh, matters to young kids. In other words, you can flip the switch from that program stinks to, hey, that program's awesome really quick because most kids really don't start paying attention to college football programs until, you know, in general, they're 11 or 12 years old, and even some of them aren't paying attention then. So it's really only the last, like, you know, three or four or five years on the outside edge that really matters to these kids in terms of how cool a program is. So my point on that is if Dion starts to win a little bit at Colorado, he can make that program really sexy to young recruits. And for people who've been out to Boulder, it's a really fun place to go to college. Uh, and you can see how sizzle can come back quickly. And, and, and I feel like Josh Heupel at Tennessee is a good example of this. The, the kids 1998 national championship at Tennessee might as well be 1968 or 1978 or 1958 to these kids. It just doesn't register. Uh, but 10 and two, and Hendon Hooker, you know, beating Alabama and the field getting stormed, that's something that's going to register for the next four and five years for those kids in a way that whatever Peyton Manning did, which doesn't feel that long ago to me or T. Martin or any of those other guys. Same thing for Michigan football, by the way. Michigan, all of a sudden, is beating Ohio State. And if you're 14 and you didn't really pay much attention to college football until you're 12, you don't even care what Michigan did in 2014, right? You're like, right now, they're really good. That's a cool program. And so you can take, I think, with these young recruits and certainly with the transfer portal, you can take a team that's not very good and flip them over and turn them into a quality team way faster than at any point, I think, in recent college football history. Clay Travis with us on OutKick 360. Clay, I, I look around college football with the new coaching hires. I see a lot of really solid fits, a lot of hires that make sense. Which program got it right the most? Well, I, I mean, when I look at what Matt Rule did at Baylor, it's, and it's funny to say this because I would have said this about Scott Frost five years ago or whenever it was. Yeah. But I think Matt Rule is likely to have success at Nebraska to the extent that you could. Uh, I like that move. I think uh, Brom to Louisville makes a lot of sense. You know, you bring back a guy who knows that program well, who spent, I think he grew up in that city and was a quarterback yeah. at Trinity, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So not only was he a Louisville Cardinal success story at quarterback, but he's deeply embedded in Kentucky football culture in terms of what uh, Trinity means to the city of Louisville for people out there who are familiar uh, with that. I think he could make uh, a lot of sense. But the guy that I like the best is Hugh Freeze. I, I, I just think he's not going to fail at 
Auburn. He's going to recruit well. They're going to spend a lot of money on NIL now. To the extent you're worried about, you know, off the field related recruiting issues, basically there are no violations anymore. Uh, and if Hugh Freeze was able to beat Nick Saban back to back years at Ole Miss, which I think is the only, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he's the only coach in the SEC to ever beat Nick Saban back-to-back years since he got to Alabama. I think I'm correct in that. I don't see any reason, given Auburn's past success, by the way, uh, against uh, against Nick Saban, I don't see any reason why they're not going to be successful going forward. What do you think about Luke Fickle to Wisconsin? That, that, that's the one that immediately popped to mind for me that made perfect sense and I thought was the, the best hire of this cycle. I like that hire. My thing is, I think a lot of Wisconsin's success, frankly, has been predicated on the division set up in the Big Ten because the Big Ten West is crap uh, relative to the Big Ten East. I mean, the three best programs right now in the Big Ten are Ohio State, Michigan, certainly, and then I would say Penn State. And and I think there's a decent drop-off after those three. And the fact that they're all in the Big Ten East, a lot of times Wisconsin has dodged having to play all three of them. And, you know, a little bit like Purdue had no business in the Big Ten title game. Um, I I think Wisconsin owes a lot of its recent success to that. I think divisions are going to go away sooner rather than later in both the Big Ten and the SEC. And so I think the competitive advantage that Wisconsin has had in that division is going to cease. And I think they're going to have more challenges having to play more frequently against Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State. So, Clay, I'm watching uh, Football Night in America on NBC on, on Sunday, getting ready for the, the night game, but that great game between the Cowboys and the Colts. And uh, <laughs> Maria Taylor's on set and Jason Garrett and Tony Dungy. And they have this big think, pay, think piece segment on Jerry Jones being photographed uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas as a teenager. And it kind of spirals into this Rooney Rule you know, what's going on with race relations and owners not hiring African-American coaches. And I, I thought mostly they, they handled it okay. But then I, it, my mind went to, whatever happened to the Brian Flores lawsuit? It's amazing how that sort of disappeared, and it's just like you're waiting for the next sort of fabricated story to get to. I give Jerry Jones credit because he sat down and, and was interviewed for the piece on this and was very open about everything with that. Um, it does feel like, though, we're trying to get to the next story with all of this uh, quickly at times. W- what do you make of this story, non-story, and the way it's been covered so far? Look, I didn't see that story. So I, I think you know the idea that what you did when you were 15 is a story 65 years later is crazy, right? Um, and I would say that no matter what happened. And this is the argument I've made about teenagers for – uh, you know, tweets that they sent in the past or whatever else. Like we cancel out criminal records of minors because we believe that when you're 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, you are a minor and what you do as a teenager shouldn't define you for the rest of your life. And yet we're canceling people for tweets that they sent when they were 14 or 15. Uh, we are uh, keeping them out of college as has happened several times. And we're going back in time to that for Jerry Jones. Like, if the worst thing Jerry Jones ever did. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. 
Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Was stand on schoolhouse steps in when he was 15 and watch a major historic event unfold in front of him. Like he's lived a pretty incredible life. Um, but what I would say in general is the NFL is a copycat league. And uh, oftentimes, whatever works in the NFL, it's a lot like Hollywood. Everybody wants their version of whatever just had success. Uh, that's how competitive it is. And so uh, was it Sean McVay gets hired and immediately has tons of success at the Rams? And if you were remotely connected to Sean McVay, if you were a 38-year-old white guy with a scruffy beard and you did offense, everybody wanted you because they're like, oh, you're the next Sean McVay. Um, I think what the, the best way to, uh, to have the NFL unlock coaching potential, and I've, I've written this and I, I've argued it for a long time, is for a young black coach to be wildly successful and then everybody else will try to find their version of that. Because if when you look at the NFL, it is so wildly competitive. If there were racist hiring practices going on, then simply by being not racist, you would win way more football games, right? I mean, that's just the reality. Um, and, you know, it's hard for me to believe that NFL owners aren't doing everything they think they can to win when Deshaun Watson is accused of sexual assault by 30 women or whatever the heck it is. And he just got signed to the highest, most guaranteed contract money in the history of the sport of football, right? The thing that matters the most to NFL owners is not black or white, it's green. And if you make it more likely that their team is going to make money, which is, what do you do? Win more games. They'll overlook basically anything. So I, I just, you know, what I've always said is I'm more interested in the entry points than I am the exit points. And so if you look at the number one pathway to be a head coach in the NFL right now, it tends to be guys who do what? Go work at the lowest rungs of an NFL franchise starting at the age of 22 or 21 or whatever it is and work your way up to a head coaching opportunity by being inside of those buildings for a long time. And it seems to me that the more interesting question, as opposed to looking at the output, is to look at the input and say, what does our entryway look? Are we missing 22-year-olds who have a lot of potential because of a variety of reasons? That's more interesting to me than looking at the end result, because ultimately, it takes, it's like my, you know, people talk to me about soccer, for instance. They're like, why isn't the U.S. better at soccer? And I'm like, well, you have to have more elite 13-year-olds in order to eventually produce elite 23-year-olds, right? So what does the input look like? Where is the talent coming from is far more interesting to me than what does the output look like? Because typically you're going to produce, it takes a decade or 15 years to produce the results um, you know, just like any other investment, you, 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 the reason why you invest in the S and P 500 is not because next year it's suddenly going to return a guaranteed amount. It's because over the course of time, you're going to make eight, nine, 
uh, and every 10 years, your money's going to double. You don't know when those years are going to be good. And certainly this past year has been awful, uh, but you got to trust the long-term data. Clay Travis, OutKick, OutKick.com. And he joins us weekly each Wednesday at this time. Clay, always great to catch up with you, man. Hope you're well. We'll chat soon. Appreciate you all. See ya. Yep. Thanks, Clay. There's Clay Travis there. Great answer there at the end. And uh, you know my theory on what's the cyclical nature of the NFL coverage. <clears throat> the, the next thing that I think happens, you mentioned Brian Flores, and it sparks what I believe will happen. And again, it's just I, 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 I try to see it coming because we know how the NFL media works and they jump around. When Steve Wilkes isn't named the head coach of the Carolina Panthers after being the interim coach, he's already a part of that lawsuit. Remember, he's a part of the lawsuit where he said that the Arizona Cardinals used him as a bridge coach, and he had, really had no real chance. He joined the Flores lawsuit. I would say if he's not named the head coach uh, after being the interim in Carolina, that that's the next story Yeah, with it, who's already a part of the lawsuit to begin with, and that's how you get back into the news cycle with it. Yeah, I, I really respect Tony Dungy and always value his opinion on these things, and he was talking about the Jerry Jones part of it also, and he had some good thoughts on it. He kind of went into his past and said, look, I, I became a head coach and knew what I was doing because uh, Denny Green, Dennis Green gave right. me a chance. Right. He said, you know, they, that, that was my entry point. But not only did he give me a chance, he, he took me in on personnel meetings. I was doing things that only head coaches and GMs would do, and he brought me along to show me that, and it really helped when he got his first coaching opportunity in Tampa for that reason. And he kind of talked about the need for more guys to be doing that across the league. And if you don't know someone, you know, it's more about what you know and who you know and not necessarily about owners being racist. I thought he had some really good thoughts on yeah. it. Jason Garrett said, I was asked after a, you know, after a game – uh, between Russell Wilson and Dak Prescott that he coached. Hey, what's it like coaching in this game with two black quarterbacks going ahead? It was some sort of first or it hadn't happened in a while. And he said, I looked at the report and said, are we still really talking about this? Yeah. Are we? Is this really a thing now? He just didn't see it as a thing at the time. He said, it's crazy that this is still a story. I'll say on the Jerry Jones thing, you know, what, 57 years ago? People change over 57 years. Who you were seven years ago isn't who you are now. So I don't know what he's doing in that picture. Uh, he answered the question that he was there more as a curiosity than anything else. But I'm sure Jerry Jones, growing up in Little Rock, Arkansas, in that time, in the Jim Crow South, thought things then that he does not think now. It also doesn't look great when he's never hired a black head coach, obviously. But everyone that's been around Jerry Jones that's comment on this story isn't talking about Jerry Jones as some racist so I think years in this business has changed Jerry Jones for the better in terms of race relations. That would be my guess, and I'm also hearing that from a lot of people who've spoken up on behalf of Jerry Jones that knows him well. We look at the sports evening and get you set for tomorrow next on Outkick 360. Chad, tonight we've got the uh, Iowa against Iowa State matchup on the hardwood. All right. ESPN2 action tonight. Big time. And then some NBA you know that's games one that I look forward to every I'll be year. bypassing these NBA matchups to get ready for the glorious Raiders-Rams matchup tomorrow night on Thursday Night Football. Tyler was telling me about a, like a betting trick that he likes to do with NBA games where he'll see like a big line, and then the way the games go, someone's going to jump out way ahead, and then you just wait until that team's ahead and then take the take team it. that's favored to begin with because you know they're going to go on a big run at some point. Yes. It's a good way to get the odds in your favor.
Trey Wallace will join us. Looking forward to the chat tomorrow with him, plus Armando Salguero, and one big thing on every NFL game. We start each afternoon, 3 o'clock Eastern, on this radio station and across the Outkick Network, streaming live at outkick.com. Um, Chad, the headlines, I mean, let's end it with this. Aaron Judge. It was a move that the Yankees had to make, but this is a legacy move for Aaron Judge. Uh, we, we hit it on earlier in the show, but the massive contract with all this money being paid, this guy now gets the money, doubles down on himself, bets on himself, wins, sticks with the franchise, the brand, and you know the Padres came in over the top at the very end of this. Turn it down, man. He did the right thing because he's now a lifer with the Yankees. It's the right move. It's good for the Yankees. It's good for Judge and future earnings also. It's good for baseball that you got Aaron Judge, the superstar in New York with the Yankees. Have a great evening. In the meantime, hit outkick.com. Catch you tomorrow on Outkick 360.